Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our exploration of planarians, memory, learning, and conditioning. And of course, today we're going to get to the cannibalism. That's right. If you did not listen to part one, do go back and listen to it because we lay the groundwork. We discuss these organisms, why they're interesting. We discuss their regenerative powers. Uh, We talk about uh, McConnell himself. We talk about his uh, personal and uh, professional history, uh, as well as his run-in with the Unabomber. Right. Uh, so that figure, of course, is James V. McConnell, the American psychologist. Uh, but if you listened to the last episode, as you should before this one, you already know that. So we're picking up after McConnell's initial research demonstrating in the 1950s that despite conventional wisdom that invertebrates could not learn, could not be trained through classical conditioning or any other kind of associative learning – uh, McConnell and colleagues did in fact demonstrate that that's not true, at least for planarians, uh, the, these flatworms that uh, that could be trained to react to something like a light stimulus. And we also discussed how it's just generally known to be true today that invertebrates can learn. The conventional wisdom at the time was wrong. Uh, but so to pick up with McConnell's career, after completing his graduate degree at the University of Texas, Jer- I almost said Jerry O'Connell, not Jerry O'Connell. James McConnell moved on to the University of Michigan where he continued his research into flatworms with a team that came to be known as the Planarian Research Group or PRG. So another piece of context for this research is a sort of quest for the holy grail within 20th century psychology and neuroscience. And this was the hunt for the elusive engram. Uh, it was believed by many in the mid-century that a researcher, that the, the first researcher to actually pinpoint something known as the engram would receive the Nobel Prize for their work. But what was the engram? The short version is that the engram was believed to be the fundamental physical unit of memory represented in the body. In order for an animal to learn an association between two things, that memory has to be accompanied by some kind of physical change inside the body. But what is the fundamental unit of that change? Is it a structural change in the brain that can be located or is it something else? So the idea is that you, you would see the physical evidence of learning yeah. and then potentially like that is physical evidence that could be then manipulated. Of course, yeah. It, it's sort of like searching for the atom. What the atom is to matter, the engram would be to memory. Mm-hmm. What is the fundamental unit that, that physically indicates in the body a memory has been formed? And of course, one motivation for studying whether simpler organisms like worms and other invertebrates could in fact learn associations through classical conditioning was that this might help move along the search for the engram. If a biological phenomenon seems too complex to understand in one organism, you know, if you can't find it in a rabbit, everything's just too complicated, maybe you can get a foothold to understanding by looking for analogous phenomena in simpler organisms and then build your way back up. Yeah, and this is sensible way to go about it. 
Of course. Uh, so research in the middle of the 20th century tried to locate the engram to changes in a specific part of the brain in a rat, but these efforts failed. In fact, rat brain memory research demonstrated that there was no one location or structure in which the fundamental unit of memory association was to be found. Instead, learning seemed to involve wide swaths of the rat cortex. And today we know that certain regions of the brain are especially important for memories. For example, fear-based conditioning, like if you condition somebody to respond to a stimulus through conditioning due to an electric shock. This seems to strongly implicate the amygdala, not just fear actually, but other types of emotional memory as well, I think. Uh, While memory of spatial locations and physical maps seems especially to implicate the hippocampus, But memories for complex actions, maybe finding your way around a maze, as was often tried with rats, will involve lots of different parts of the brain at once. So you can't point to the memory in one specific part of the brain. It's using the whole brain, basically. In the 1950s, this wasn't yet clear. It was was just clear that memory, contrary to the expectations of many psychologists, couldn't be located in one particular structure or single point physical change in the brain. And because of the failure of researchers to locate a structural engram at a single point in the brain, some researchers began to turn to other explanations, and McConnell was one of them. McConnell wondered... What if memories were not stored exclusively in structures in the brain? Could you have memories in your hands, in your blood, in your guts? Was there a deeper chemical rather than structural basis for our memories? And here's where the planarians again become an invaluable research tool in looking into could you have memories outside the brain? Could there be such a thing as a memory chemical or a memory molecule found throughout the body? And in the, yeah, this we come back to the regenerative powers of the planarian. Uh, we described this in the first episode as being something like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, the old uh, f- uh, Disney animation from Fantasia in which the uh, – uh, what, what is it? It's a broom that is brought to life to do a particular task. Yeah, to carry then, water from a well, I think. Yeah, and something then, like yeah, that. Yeah, it it's a well. And then uh, – and then Mickey, the sorcerer's apprentice in this case, uh, ends up having to uh, sl- uh, to destroy it. So he mm. chops it into a million pieces with his axe. And then all those millions of pieces, each little sliver of the broom comes back to life and grows into a whole new fresh uh, a broom with uh, that walks around on two legs and carries buckets of water. Right. And this connects to the regenerative powers of planaria because if you cut a planarian in half, one of these flatworms, just chop it in half, crosswise separating the head from the tail, each half of the worm would grow back the part it lost. So the decapitated head could regrow a tail and the decapitated tail could regrow a head, hmm. which means regrowing a brain. So McConnell's question was, If I condition a flatworm to learn something, maybe have a response to a stimulus like a flashing light, and then I cut it in half, which half of the worm will retain the response, Mm. if either? Now, you might think the answer is obvious, right? Well, obviously, the head half is where the brain is, so the head half will retain the conditioning if either side does, and the tail half won't, right? That that seems like the obvious conclusion. Right. Yeah, that's what you would assume. That's what, like, a basic understanding of monster movies would have you assume. Yes. McConnell found this was not exactly true. In his experiments on freshwater flatworms called uh, Dugesia duratocephala, if you classically condition the worm to respond to a light— and then you cut the flatworm into two halves, 
both halves retained the conditioning. And in a few cases, the tail retained the conditioning more strongly than the head. Oh, wow. So you could cut the head off. The tail would regrow a head and it would still respond like the, the way it had learned to respond when it had its original head. So if all the learning was in the brain, how could that be possible? Right. This would seem to indicate that there's some sort of memory retention or memory storage going on within the body itself. Right. Uh, And these results were eventually published in the Journal of Comparative and Physiological Psychology. But then it gets even weirder because we're going to start playing flatworm ship of Theseus. (laughs) Uh, so a refresher on the ship of Theseus thought experiment. Robert, do you want to do the honors here? Oh, sure. This is the basic idea. If you uh, you have this ship, this legendary ship of Theseus, you're celebrating it uh, across the uh, the decades. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is a ship that is docked for decades tends to fall apart piece by piece. So you replace it piece by piece. Eventually, you reach the point where you have replaced every single piece of this vessel. The question is is the ship of Theseus any longer the ship of Theseus? Is it, it's, it's not physically the same ship it was before, but is it the same shape? It's just all the pieces have been at this point replaced. Now, what if you, in fact, do this with flatworms since they can regenerate? And this is exactly what they tried. In a series of experiments, uh, McConnell and the Planarian Research Group showed that if you cut a worm, like, for example, you cut a flatworm's head off, after it's been conditioned and trained. So it has this memory response. And then that tail regrows a head. And then you cut the original tail off. So the regenerated head regrows a tail. Now you've got no original part of the worm left. So you've been through these multiple generations of cutting a worm apart and letting it regenerate. And yet their experiments found that some learning, training, memory was retained across the multiple generations where there was no original part of the worm left. Again, how would this be possible? Like, if memories are stored exclusively in the brain, how could a memory uh, necessary to establish a conditioned response still operate within a tail that had its head cut off or a segment of a worm grown from a segment of a worm grown from a segment of a worm that had been through the conditioning? And this led McConnell to suppose that he had evidence that memory may have strong chemical components that are not limited to activity within the brain. There could be actual molecules of chemical memory coursing through the worm's body. Now, if this were true, this would, of course, be a revolutionary discovery, right? Right, right. Uh, because of, of and it would conceivably apply to other organisms. I mean, that's that's the thing. It might force us to completely rethink what we thought we knew about memory. Right, and of course, if it were true of flatworms, it's possible it would only be true of flatworms. But yeah, you you don't know where else this would mm-hmm. lead. Could it even be true of more complex animals? So it was this line of research about cut up flatworms retaining memories that led actually to the founding of the magazine we talked about in the last episode, The Worm Runner's Digest. Uh, This was McConnell's magazine that quite strangely combined both real research on uh, on planarians. It was like real flatworm research published alongside weird poems and and joke articles and satirical articles and stuff. It's such a weird title. The worm part clearly relates to the, 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 the worm experiments. Mm-hmm. But it also brings to mind like Blade Runner, except it's Worm Runner. And it also makes me think of various Gary Larson Farside cartoons uh-huh. in which a worm is perhaps, you know, wearing sweatpants and, and running. That's good. But the joke in, t- in the title is actually a reference to like 
common terms used by psychologists of this period. Lots of research about learning and memory involve rats and mazes. Oh, and running such. the maze. And so researchers who did this kind of work referred to themselves jokingly in the 1950s as rat runners. McConnell's variation is self-explanatory. Ah, Jerry the the worm runner. Okay, I got it. Not Jerry. You're Jerry, Jerry O'Connell. Ah, no, James I McConnell. I Jerry myself there. <laughs> James the worm runner then. Uh-huh. Uh, But yeah, actually, so coming back, so this led to the founding of this strange magazine that he became very well known for. Uh, The story as summarized by Larry Stern, and I I mentioned several sources at the beginning of the last episode. We're we're still referring to those sources in this episode. Uh, One was an article by Larry Stern that, that talked about the founding of this magazine. So in 1959, McConnell presented some of this work, uh, this work about uh, chopping up flatworms and then supposedly retaining memories to an annual convention of the American Psychological Association, the APA. And this included results collected by a member of the Planarian Research Group named Reva Jacobson. And again, this research showed that not only could a decapitated flatworm retain associative learning, but essentially the ship of Theseus flatworm containing no tissue of the original worm could also retain learning. And after the presentation, Newsweek published an article summarizing the research. This led to a huge survey of popular interest in McConnell's work. And uh, so Larry Stern writes, quote, Shortly after the Newsweek coverage, McConnell was inundated with letters from high school students from around the country asking where they could obtain worms for their projects and how they should go about caring for and training them. Some students, according to McConnell, demanded that he send them a few hundred trained worms at once as their projects were due within days. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds a little familiar, right? (laughs) Students don't do things like this. But McConnell did want to help students conduct their own flatworm research. I I get the feeling he was into this idea, but he realized very quickly that it didn't make sense to try to respond to each letter individually. So instead, he decided to publish a manual on how to replicate the experiments performed by the PRG. And he titled this document, The Worm Runner's Digest. Uh, (laughs) However, after publishing this manual under that title, McConnell started getting submissions to appear in future issues. So he began publishing this so-called journal on a regular basis, again, including both real research and psychological in-jokes, cartoons, poems, and all that kind of stuff. Interesting. So it's kind of accidentally became a, a continuing publication. Yeah. Now, as you can imagine, some people didn't take kindly to this mix of subject matter. In 1964, after some readers complained that they couldn't tell the real research from the jokes and the satire, they started publishing the satirical elements upside down in the back half of the journal. So there was some attempt there to clear up the confusion. But I think for a lot of scientists, the pure proximity of the different material was was a problem no matter how clear the division. Well, that, I think that's understandable. We talked before about the Ig Nobel Prizes, for instance, about yeah. how most of the individuals involved and honored by these prizes that celebrate, you know, scientific studies that are legitimate scientific studies but that are in, on some level uh, humorous or amusing. But you still have some individuals in the scientific world who – do not see the value of that at oh, all. Sure. So yeah. if they're so if feathers are ever ruffled by the Ig Nobel prizes, obviously something like this would ruffle feathers as well. Yes. Uh, So then in 1967, there came another split where the serious half of the journal was just formally cleaved and and renamed. In fact, cloven in half like a flatworm, Uh, chopped right off, decapitated. The the serious half was renamed the Journal of Biological Psychology and the Worm Runner's Digest became the sole haven of humor and it continued publishing that way until 1979. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. 
All right, we're back. All right, so to jump back into the progression of James McConnell's research, we're, we're brought back to this question of a non-brain chemical basis for memory. Could memory, or at least some memory, some types of memories, be stored chemically rather than structurally, dispersed in the body in molecules? And here's where we get to the cannibalism. So if there were, in fact, molecules within an animal representing some kind of chemical memory, such as memory of how to navigate a maze, could this be demonstrated? Could those molecules be shared from one animal to another? And this makes sense. That's what creatures do. They take molecules from each other, from other organisms, and put them into themselves. Sure. We absorb the molecules existing in other organisms for nutrition. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe you oh, – could molecules be absorbed from one organism to another for memory transfer? So the first method they tried uh, – and this is uh, based on uh, the reporting of the, one of those Larry Stern articles. The first method they tried was to splice the head of a conditioned worm onto the tail of an unconditioned worm to see if it would share molecules, right, to force them to exchange the alleged memory molecules. Uh, but the transplant did not work. The head would not stay attached. Then they tried to liquefy fully conditioned flatworms and inject their juice into untrained worms. But this was also difficult. Uh, the planarians were too small to be injected, basically, and sometimes they exploded when injected. <laughs> In Larry Stern's words, quote, it was like trying to impale a prune with a javelin. A lot of horrific things done to, <laughs> to planarians in yeah. these experiments. I guess they're uh, simple enough organisms that uh, we yeah, don't have to be horrified. Yeah, you get so uh, upset about them, I guess. But yeah. um, uh, still, one can't help but pause a little on some of these. Right, some of the grinding, yeah, the, <laughs> uh, the, the sauce, the gravy, the, the flatworm sauce. Uh, so how do you get those hypothetical memory molecules in there if you can't inject them, you can't transplant a head-on. So the next route they tried, and this was in the year 1960, was experimental planarian cannibalism. Ah, this uh, would be the old-fashioned way of getting molecules from one organism into the other. Sure. So apparently the idea came from a flatworm researcher named J. Boyd Best, who communicated to McConnell about the fact that one particular species of planarian was known for cannibalistic behavior. So here's the answer. You train the worms to respond to, to a maze or to the light, whatever the conditioning stimulus is, and then they learn the conditioning, and then you grind them up into worm gravy, and then you feed the worm gravy to the untrained, naive worms, and you see what happens. And astonishingly, their early experiments with this method looked very promising, including a number of early replication attempts with blinding procedures to remove the possibility of experiment or bias, supposedly confirming their early results. So if it were true that memory molecules were being exchanged through this strange cannibalistic ritual, could I, you know, would this extend to humans? Could, could I drink your flesh and gain your memories? Mm. And how was it happening? What was the chemical basis here? So one interesting line of reasoning here followed from the still somewhat recent discoveries about genetic information being stored in and mediated by nucleic acids, DNA and RNA. Remember, you know, we're not too far from, uh, from the discovery of the double helix here. Oh, yes. Uh, so if DNA and RNA 
could be involved in an information management process. Passing genetic information across generations from parents to offspring. Could the same molecules also encode and mediate other types of information? I mean, information is in the DNA. So uh, specifically, could the information content of memories somehow be coded into DNA or RNA and then dispersed through the body, uh, but also transferred from one body to another? And so this is the line they took. Uh, McConnell and his team conducted experiments and, and published results that seemed to back up the idea, at least for a while, that RNA played some important role in facilitating memory and that RNA could be used to chemically inoculate naive worms with the memory associations of their more worldly predecessors. And again, just consider how revolutionary this would be if it turned out to be true. You'd be forced to wonder how far the principle could be taken. Did this only apply to planarians or did it extend to other more complex animals? Would there be ways in which humans could undergo chemical learning? Could you train the mind in some way with an injection alone or even a pill? Even if it only worked for like broad associative learning – such as, you know, the, the kind of things you get through classical conditioning with an electric shock and a st- single stimulus, mm-hmm. you could still possibly imagine profound benefits. Just one idea comes to mind, like, say you're struggling with a drug addiction. Could you seek out an injection of, a, of memory molecules to establish a strong averse reaction to your drug of choice such that you wouldn't want to take it anymore? Yeah, or to get into some of the behavioral uh, ideas that we discussed in the first episode, some of those ideas that uh, – that, uh, that McConnell was very outspoken about even later in life, you could have some sort of a cocktail that could be injected into an individual uh, that had a history of uh, violence and a history of, uh, of uh, you know, breaking the law and rebelling mm-hmm. against authority figures. And you could con- potentially fix them with this injection. Yeah, and of course there you get into the more uh, nefarious possible thing. Like you can probably instantaneously imagine – so many horrible, insidious uses for injectable conditioning if such a thing were possible. Oh, yes. I mean, as with any science, many, many fabulous uh, uses come to mind, but so many uh, nightmares as well. But we should stop and be real for a second here that uh, even if these findings had turned out to be totally solid for planaria and more on that in a moment – We should know better than to freely extrapolate from worms to humans. I think this is one of the most classic uh, traps that people fall into when interpreting biological research. I'd say more often it's people extrapolating from like rats to humans. But this Mm -hmm. is a much larger jump. This isn't even a vertebrate animal. Yeah, I mean you can't help – I often find that I can't help but but at least think about that on some level when I read a science headline. I can't help but put myself into into it somehow and imagine myself as the creature. Right, and it's often – I mean it's just done right there in the press. Again, it's – Fine to wonder about what possibilities could be implied by studies in rats for humans, but you can't just, you know, conclude from one to another. Yeah, we can't help but anthropomorphize virtually any creature. Uh And if that creature is in a study, we're also going to end up anthropomorphizing uh, that as well. But James McConnell, true to form, as we know from the last episode, was not one to be shy or cautious about interpreting his findings. He loudly proclaimed them to the public, uh, advertising uh, his results on TV programs. He apparently embraced the nickname McCannibal. Oh, nice. uh, And he predicted an era of memory pills like we just discussed. So you might be thinking like, wait a minute, he should know better than to extrapolate from – 
planarian re- – even if you assume the planarian research to be 100 percent solid uh, and we'll introduce some caveats to that. But even if you did assume that, how could you jump from that to human memory pills? It seems like a, 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 a you know a leap of miles of assumptions. Uh, yeah, very much so. And it does seem from, from what I was reading, especially in Rilling's paper about uh, McConnell, that it seemed like – to him, he sort of had a sense of humor about talking about memory pills, like as if he were sort of joking when he talked about memory pills. But that was not clear to the popular audience that was listening on the TV. You know, they weren't psychologists. They didn't understand that he was kind of kidding when he said that. Does right. that make sense? Oh, certainly. And then also there are going to be like a few different levels. Like it's like he, he may joke about it here in this paper or joke about it to this individual. But then you're going to have different levels of coverage. And it's going to get out of out of control pretty quickly. Yes. Uh, so Rilling writes that, quote, McConnell's work on retention following regeneration in planaria provides a case study in sensational journalism and illustrates how his media work escaped the normal mechanisms of peer review. So the idea is that McConnell and colleagues would do an experiment. They would obtain a very strange and interesting result that looked solid enough to get published in an academic journal. And then McConnell would immediately want to engage in, quote, wild-sounding conjectures, interpreting the meaning of his results and how they would be applied in the future. And scientific journals generally – like one example was the editor, Harry Harlow, uh, generally refused to publish these wild interpretive or speculative addendums to the research. They just say, well, we'll publish your study, but you got to – cut out this section about memory pills that doesn't belong Mm -hmm. in here. But of course, there's no peer review in the popular media. So he could go on TV and say memory pills as much as he wanted. And it turned out that that kind of thing on TV gets you booked on TV again because it's exciting, right? I mean, that's like something that people can picture. It's not hard to understand. And it's it's very like revolutionary. That's what you want in a science segment on your, uh, your news programs. You want something relatable. And here's this guy that is making it relatable and exciting. With promises that are not at all implied by the research being discussed, even if the research itself is 100 percent solid. And and retrospectively, that may be in doubt. So uh, just one example in 1959, an article in Newsweek uh, covering McConnell and the PRG research claimed it may be that in schools of the future, students will facilitate the ability to retain information with chemical injections. Uh, Apparently, there was also a lot of misunderstanding in the media, misunderstanding the fact that Multiple generations of regenerated planaria could retain training and they misunderstood this as the fact that memories can be inherited in a parent-to-child sense, which led to all kinds of Lamarckian interpretations. Mm. So I think there, there's all, there was also just confusion stemming from the use of the word inherited and generations – he was talking about like generations being chopped up and regenerating, which is quite different than what we understand. Right. And again, he's coming down – he's talking about memories here. There, there are other things that – you know, there's certainly things that affect – that have generational effects mm-hmm. in biology and in human biology. I think we've talked about studies before and about body size following periods of starvation, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Sure. But, but again, we are talking about memories here. He is explicitly talking about memory. Yes. And another one uh, that, that was quoted 
quoted in Rilling was regarding cannibalistic memory transfer, the one where you eat the worm gravy and you gain that worm's memories, supposedly. Mm -hmm. There was a 1964 article in the Saturday Evening Post that claimed we, quote, might someday enable us uh, or it might someday enable us to learn the piano by taking a pill or to take calculus by injection, (laughs) which at that point is, is very crude, gross, kind of like over-interpretation of what the memories here are and the, you know, the leap from one organism to another. You just like do a line of ground-up Beethoven. And yeah. Would, uh, yeah, I mean, th- this is this is so outrageous that like I, I feel like I would I would feel like I was overstretching to use this as an outrageous example yeah. uh, of a possibility, you know. Like earlier, I, I did the, uh, the, the, the far future example of, uh, of criminals being treated. Like this seems even, this is even, seems crazier. Right. But on the same hand, also attractive, the idea of being able to, uh, say, master calculus by simply injecting something into your body. Yeah, though I hope also our questions about potential applications, if this were true, were heavily caveated yes. enough. So in the mid-1960s, there were even studies following up on this cannibalism research claiming to bear out chemical memory transfer in other species, such as in rats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, that's kind of hard to believe. And so, like, for a few years there in the 60s, things looked incredibly promising with this research. But uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, it was not to last. There was a problem with the PRG's cannibalistic memory uh, transfer research, and it was just that it didn't hold up to sustained scrutiny over time. Over time, properly blinded and controlled efforts to replicate McConnell's results, a few of them came in saying, yeah, we replicated, but a lot did not produce the same Mm. effects for cannibalism or other chemical methods of memory transfer. Uh, According to Rilling, in 1971, uh, I guess this would be as a result of of some of these failures, the Planarian Research Group lost its grant support and this led McConnell to change focus. And after this in the 70s, he went on to write a very influential and from what I can tell, mostly well-regarded textbook for introductory psychology. Uh, Apparently, one thing that set it apart in the field was that it used a lot of fiction. It introduced students to psychological research methods with the use of stories and like fictional framing narratives to explain the principles that were discussed in each chapter, uh, even including one chapter about memory that seems to begin with a fictionalized version of the story of his research with Thompson in 1954, 55 or so, uh, though incorporating lessons about control groups that he had not learned very well back then. Huh. And as we discussed more in the previous episode, later in his career, I think he was known more maybe for being a fierce public advocate of the powers of behavior modification through conditioning. Again, this was an era in which behaviorist psychology was seen by many as a potentially revolutionary scientific tool for minute control of human minds and lives. This is the birth of the modern concept of brainwashing, Mm. right? And McConnell wrote and appeared on TV arguing that behavioral conditioning would fundamentally alter the nature of criminal justice and democratic society itself. Uh, I think there was one article he wrote that was titled something like, We Must Brainwash Criminals Now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great headline, though. No doubt about it. Yeah. uh, Certainly if you want to get the clicks. uh, Yeah. He he was – maybe he was clickbait before the internet existed. He he does. He does seem very clickbaity. And this is something some of his colleagues said about them. This is quoted in the Rilling paper that – 
he wanted to shock people. He wanted to say things that would make people say, what? What's this guy talking about? That can't be true. And he said, you know, the idea was you, you bring people in by shocking them and then you educate them with the science. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that can be an okay method if what you if what you say in order to shock people isn't fundamentally dishonest in some way. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of it, it kind of gets into a similar area of like leading with an example, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's an outrage outrageous example. Sometimes, like on this show, we, we bring up a monster, something fantastic, and we use that to talk about something that is, uh, that is real and talk about actual scientific uh, studies or actual biology that somehow matches up to that. But... Well, I hope we, we never – I hope if we start with Godzilla, we don't leave you with the impression at the end of the episode that Godzilla right. is real and true. <laughs> right, yeah. But it is interesting how it seems like some of the things that did make him such a great communicator and and ultimately like a great author of an introductory uh, uh, psychology uh, book, uh, those are also some of the things that that got him in trouble. Yeah, that totally seems to be true based on everything I've read. But uh, but coming back to the the memory transfer issue, I I just want to say that I think the conclusion, unfortunately, at the end is that the cannibalistic memory transfer saga is widely regarded now as a dead end. Despite a few reports of moderate replication successes, McConnell's results ultimately did not hold up to widespread scrutiny and the rigorous application of controls by others, and it looks like his supposed discoveries about memory transfer through injection or cannibalism were probably wrong. But not all of his conclusions were necessarily wrong. I mean, again, one of the points of Rilling's article seems to be that despite the ultimate failure of the memory transfer through cannibalism theory, McConnell did make truly important contributions to research on invertebrate learning in the 1950s. And while the memory transfer or the memory molecule transfer through cannibalism is almost definitely a dead end, more recent studies have sort of raised the question of whether his like decapitation and transplantation research might have been on the right track. All right, we're going to take one more break. When we come back, we're going to discuss some of these modern follow-ups regarding planarian decapitation and brain transplant. All right, we're back. So we discussed through uh, through the end of the career of, of James V. McConnell, who studied planarians, memory, memory transfer, or memories outside of the brain. And uh, we, we brought up the, the idea that this subject has been revisited by researchers just in the past few years who, who think that while McConnell was probably wrong about like say eating flatworms and gaining their memories – there may be some truth to the idea of memory somehow being stored outside the brain or transferred without a full brain. Yeah. So, uh, for instance, it has been demonstrated that if you transplant a planarian's brain into another worm's body, uh, it it will result in at least partial recovery of function, even if the brain is put in backwards or transplanted across species. Uh, The author uh, Pagan, who we we brought up earlier, who wrote The First Brain, uh, he points this out. And he points out that basically the cross-species transplants held, meaning there was no uh, rejection. And 48 hours later, the worm retained mostly normal behavior. I mean, that's pretty weird. But again, it's worms, I guess. Right. Yeah, one of the big take-homes from all of this is that planarian brains and planarians in general are strange. Right. So a lot of what we determine – a lot of what we learn from this research, you could interpret as some – 
fascinating deeper insight about biology as a whole, or you could interpret it as fascinating specific facts about these flatworms. Absolutely. Uh, so in particular, though, uh, Pagan and others are referring to a 1985 study by Davies et al. And they, they were working with a species of planarian that actually can't regenerate brain tissue. But uh, a transplanted brain will take root and, quote, nerves exiting the brain tended to join with the peripheral nerves closest to them, which I think is a wonderful image of the brain being implanted in this creature and then like the like the, like roots forming, like the vein, like uh-huh. it connects itself. It hooks itself up like a car battery that has been placed in, <laughs> inside another via, a new vehicle and all the things just kind of hook up automatically. Plug and play. Yeah. yeah. Well, or like uh, like mistletoe or some other kind of parasite that like sticks its little uh, – uh, Haustorium or whatever the little spikes down into the host. Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's definitely yeah. not the the human experience. I mean, not to not to discuss uh, you know whole body transplant or human brain and head transplant uh, much in this episode. But basically, it's very complicated, if not impossible, in humans. Yeah. Uh, well, and again, uh, to look at memory more broadly, neuroscientists today mostly broadly understand memories to be neural networks, right? Networks within the brain, sort of strings of reinforced connections between neurons and brain regions that specify memories by their cross-linked structure. A memory is in some way a a, a series of connections between neurons in the brain. Uh, Though that does seem to be the case, beyond that broad picture, there's still a lot we don't know about the physical basis of memory. And so even in, uh, especially in organisms like flatworms, there are ways in which memory could be operating and that are still mysterious to us. Right. Now, of course, the quest to solve these mysteries continues. Uh, a great deal of uh, planarian research uh, is still going on. And you'll see quite a bit of it come out of Tufts University. Mm-hmm. And you'll see um, a researcher by the name of Michael Levin yeah. uh, often is a, is a head author or a co-author or contributing author on these papers. Yeah. Uh, and there was one big study that got some press being connected back to McConnell's research that Levin was at least one of the authors on, um, and and basically it had to do with replicating a version of the decapitation experiment, showing that somehow it appeared memory. If the study was designed properly and there wasn't some kind of flaw that people didn't notice in there, that memories maybe were somehow being transferred through the decapitation process. Right. This was a 2013 Tufts University study that found that a decapitated flatworm that grows a new head keeps its old memories. Uh, for instance, the, the Sarah Zhang um, article about this that appeared in Nautilus uh, carried the title, Decapitation But Not Cannibalism Might Transmit Memories. <laughs> Without context, that's a pretty weird title. <laughs> right. But, but then within context, the, the article refers back to McConnell's work uh, mm. uh, quite a bit. And the idea here is that some trace of, the me- of memory might be stored in neural circuits outside the brain. And certainly when you take that and you compare it to these, uh, you know, these other you – know, to this uh, previous study uh, with, the, with one brain being dropped into a new creature, uh, a new, uh, new individual and seeing it ta- you know, take root and, uh, and seemingly bounce back, uh, that becomes all the more interesting. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that has clearly been the case, and this was discussed in that uh, article in The Verge we talked about in the last episode, is that uh, Levin's research has been focused on trying to eliminate some of the problems that could have existed in the original McConnell research. One example is that, that he helped create um, 
a, a thing called an automatic training apparatus. Basically, hmm. it's a robot for conditioning the flatworms to oh, take, wow. take the human element, uh, element out of the training process to eliminate any kind of bias or error that could be introduced that way. But I love the idea in general of a, a robot for training worms. Yes. <laughs> so that, that 2013 study especially generated quite a bit of, of interest. And at the time, uh, there, was a, there was mixed response from the scientific community. Now, I, I do want to drive home that uh, it is not my interpretation that Michael Levin is anything like a McConnell figure. Uh, he, seem, he seems to be a very respected researcher. And most of his work, is, like I say, you see him on a lot of studies for just general planaria research. Right. No, I mean – I, I, don't, I haven't seen anything where Michael Levin is going on TV and saying memory pills. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, and, and by and large, it seems like most of his work just deals with, with regeneration uh, in these planaria uh, uh, worms. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so you had, you had plenty of people, though, that were supportive and thought that, you know, they might be onto something. Uh, others were a little critical at the time. Uh, Robert uh, Kentridge uh, a, was a psychologist at Durham University, and he pointed out in a 2015 Verge article, that Verge article we uh, cited earlier, uh, that it might be simply related to, quote, behavior induced by a stress hormone itself triggered by the uh, the texturalized Petri dishes, unquote. Uh, it, and to clarify there, part of what the study looked at to, to see conditioning in the uh, flatworms was – You'd have these textured Petri dishes where they would be swimming around the food they were going to eat mm -hmm. and how fast they approached the food in a newly textured Petri dish environment was taken as a signal of their memory or familiarity with the environment. Like you put a new flatworm in a textured Petri dish, it circles for a while before going for the food because it's exploring its environment. It doesn't know. Uh, but after it's been trained with the texture in a Petri dish, it goes straight for the food because it already knows the environment. Right. Yes. So, so basically, a number of individuals uh, said, well, there, there are aspects of the study that could have been better designed. Sure. Now, again, Michael Levin, uh, his research continues, uh, he, and you, you'll find a number of studies uh, from very recently that he's been involved with. Uh, uh, he was an author uh, on a study earlier this year, Neural Control of Body Plan Axis in Regenerating Planaria. And in 2015, he put out a, a paper on the planarian regeneration model as deciphered by artificial intelligence. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, that same year, he was also a co-author on another study uh, that included the, the growth of extra heads. Yeah, I, I've seen also that he... I think both within and outside of planaria, he's just generally studied regeneration. Yeah, and uh, and with the planaria, of course, it's it's just such an amazingly regenerative creature. You get things like like this uh, the second study that I mentioned from 2015. They were able to induce one species of flatworm to grow heads and brains characteristic of another species of flatworm without altering genomic sequence, and then the individual later regenerated to the appropriate head shape. Huh. Now, quickly, I guess one thing worth discussing is if the research associated with uh, with Michael Levin is in fact correct, the results are valid, there's not some kind of flaw we're missing in the design of the study, and uh, and this is really going on, the, the memories are surviving the regeneration without an original brain, how would you interpret this? Like what does it mean if this is in fact true? Uh, so a, a, a couple of ideas were given in the, that 2015 Verge article. Levin – uh, hy uh, quote, hypothesizes that memories could spread beyond the brain thanks to electrical charges generated by cells in the rest of the body. So there's some kind of information encoding this just like coming from cells in the other body that are electrically stimulating something like a, a memory response. Hmm. Uh, but then there's another uh, thing cited in the same piece – 
by uh, Ava Jablonka, a developmental biologist at Tel Aviv University. And uh, she offers a, a speculative explanation involving particles called, quote, small RNAs, which are short copies of DNA, but they, uh, they don't turn into proteins. They don't generate proteins. So when a flatworm learns an association or an episode, something in this model about the brain chemistry would change. And then these changes alter the small RNAs present in the body, which of course are not confined to the brain because they migrate around between cells. And by migrating around between cells, she says perhaps they end up in stem cells that remain in the body after the worm's head is cut off. And to read from the article, quote, when the worm's head grows back, the small RNAs migrate back to the head changing the brain's chemistry and allowing it to learn certain behaviors more quickly. Um, if true, the memory that Levin thinks is stored outside the brain wouldn't be memory at all. Rather, the small RNAs would allow the flatworm to recover a brain environment that helps them learn a specific behavior more quickly. So the idea there is that if this uh, speculative idea is correct, and again, she, she's very clear to state that this, this isn't something we know. It's just a speculative interpretation. Maybe it works this way then what would be happening is these little chemical molecules don't transmit the memory, pre prepare the new brain to learn a memory that was previously learned more quickly. Hmm. Okay. So at least we have a, a hypothetical model of how this would actually work, uh, which uh, – or at least here's one model presented anyway. Sure. But ultimately we don't know for sure. And again, another thing that we don't know for sure is – if these results do hold up, is this something that's specific to planaria? Is mm -hmm. it flatworms only that can transfer memories in this way? Or could this be more applicable beyond flatworms to other organisms? Yeah, because that's the thing. Other organisms can't regenerate like a, like a planaria can. But at the same time, we, one, of the, one of the things that's often cited for researching planaria regeneration is that we might learn something that could be applicable to humans. Of course. As especially, I mean, without even getting into memory implantation, just the idea that they have such impressive neural regenerative uh, powers, the, the ability to regenerate like damaged brain cells, you know, if mm -hmm. we could – if we could develop some better method of doing that based on our studies of these organisms, then that would be tremendous. Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, though it – when you introduce the idea of brain regeneration or anything like that to a human context, things emerge that don't necessarily seem to be of concern when you're talking about planaria. Mm -hmm. Planaria don't seem to have extremely distinct personalities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, humans do. Uh, you know, however much we want to joke about humans acting like sheep and all being the same. We, You know, we, we've got a lot of different stuff going on in our heads. If you cut your head off and regrew it, what indication – would you have that the new head would be you in any sense other than sharing your DNA? Well, I guess as long as it said all the right things. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it would like, be just, just get along just fine. It would be like a pea zombie perhaps. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I mean, would it I, – I guess it would be a question of whether it would retain any memories from your life. You could you know, talk about whether that might be stored in the body somehow or – even if you assume, it, OK, it retains no memories whatsoever because those are just stored in the brain. Whatever may or may not be happening in flatworms doesn't happen in all at all in humans. Even if you assume all that, you'd also have to ask like would its personality be the same as yours? Personality is so shaped by life experience. I don't know. Huh. It makes me wonder, has anyone ever considered – creating a, like a science fiction yarn in which you look at what would human society be like 
if we had regenerative properties like this? Mm-hmm. Like, what would war be like? What would uh, what would reproduction in, uh, in society be like? I mean, granted, it be, I think the obvious answer it would absolutely change everything. Right. But the fun thing about science fiction is you don't you don't have to go all the way. You can just sort of like tweak it. Like, what would this if we if I were to look at this particular vision for a totally regenerative planarian human species, then what could I perhaps unravel about? Uh, our actual human condition. Well, I mean, I think we pretty much all, at some state, at some point or other, get into a get into a place where we're not very happy with our own brain. We don't mm-hmm. like the the emo- emotional patterns we're feeling. Maybe we're ruminating in bad ways. I mean, this happens pretty often to people. So, what if you had the option to you get into a bad state like that? You know, you can just cut your head off and grow a new one. These are exactly what the uh, horrifying orange creatures in Labyrinth are all about when they <laughs> uh, they come up to Sarah. And they encourage her, hey, take your own head off. Throw it around. Try on a different head. Let your head try it out, try itself out on a different body. See how it shakes out. Just, you know, have a, have a little fun. You're not a flatworm. Don't try it, people. <laughs> All right. We're going to go ahead and close this out then. Uh, but we hope that you have enjoyed and then learned from uh, this exploration. Uh, perhaps you'll think of flatworms uh, in a new light now. And perhaps you will even second-guess memory a little bit as well. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. And you can also find our podcast, heck, just about everywhere else. Anywhere you get the podcast, though, we do ask that you leave us a nice review. Uh, leave, leave us some stars, uh, that sort of thing. Make sure you're subscribed. That kind of thing really helps us out in the long run. Also, if you want other shows that we're involved with, there is Invention. Invention is a a journey through human techno history, one invention at a time. Go check that out. It's at inventionpod.com, and you can also find it anywhere you get your podcast. Just look up Invention. If you want a little serialized uh, horror sci-fi for your holiday season, check out The Second Oil Age. That is out as well. And I'm also told that the Stuff to Blow Your Mind t-shirt shop uh, is not only still around, it it has been around. and it still has all those wonderful squirrel and basilisk and bicameral mind designs as well as our logo designs. But there's going to be a new logo for the Thanksgiving-ish holiday and there's going to be some sort of a sale coming up. Right. If you got a friend or family member who's a fan of the show, you want to get them a holiday gift, maybe you should get them a Sphere Catastrophique shirt or a uh, Squirrels Are Not What They Seem shirt. Any one of the many wonderful offerings we've got for you right in the merch place. So go into the merch pit. Come out, uh, come out with treasures. <laughs> anyway, uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.